The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Yes, this is episode 12 of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for being part of it. You know that I solemnly serve you as your rabbi, revealing to you in a way that only I can. Yes, revealing to you how the world really works. That's right. And one of the ways that the world really works is by people serving one another, by people doing things for one another, by people providing the goods and services that others need, by people being obsessively preoccupied with what other people need and want. We call this business, and when you perform along these lines, what you receive are what I call certificates of performance. You receive little strips of colored paper or various movements on the hard drive of your financial institution, um, or maybe a check, uh, but what you receive is something we call money, which is nothing other than proof that you have served another human being. Well, uh, as it turns out, I am recording this podcast in Jerusalem, Israel, and uh, apart from all the uh, wonderful and exciting things happening in Israel, for me, one of the best parts of Israel, and frankly, primarily, what draws me on my, uh, my fairly regular visits to Israel is really only one thing, or I should say by now it's, it's, it's a little more than one thing, but basically, uh, it's my daughter, Ruth. And uh, Ruth is my number five daughter. <laughs> she, she, she wasn't confident, I knew that, so she sort of subtly held up a hand with uh, all five fingers extended. But uh, no, I knew she's uh, number five daughter. And uh, while each and every one of my daughters has amazing and incredible uniquenesses, um, hers is really quite, uh, quite remarkable. From when she was a little girl, uh, we discovered something fascinating about her, and that is that she, she really had trouble doing arithmetic. Uh, and um, like all my kids, uh, my wife and I homeschool them. So Ruthie is homeschooled. So naturally, something that might have gone undiscovered at school, who knows? I mean, it could have been years before anyone at a regular school might have thought to tell us, hey, your daughter doesn't know how to do basic arithmetic. But uh, because of a homeschooling environment, and she has four older sisters, and they're all doing more advanced things, so she started tampering and fiddling with numbers fairly early on, and we saw she was having a lot of trouble with it. And so, well, we thought, okay, fine, you know what? She'll get a little bit older, and uh, her mind will mature. She'll be four or five or six, and, and, and then she'll, she'll get the numbers right. So, we, you know, we weren't worried until all of a sudden the strangest thing happened. We discovered that if we <laughs> – you're not going to believe me, but I, I, I'm hoping that some of you listening have had a similar experience with your children, so you know this is true. 
we discovered that if we put a doll sign in front of the number, she could do any kind of arithmetic. It didn't matter. It could be the most challenging problem. It could be an enormous calculation. But as long as it was not abstract, meaningless numbers, but it was actually dollars, she could do these things on paper, in her head. It just didn't matter. Then it turned out, you know, we, uh, it, it came to be a birthday. And Ruthie, what birthday was it that, um, and I know, you know exactly what I'm going to be talking about. What were you, seven, eight, ten, somewhere, I don't know, somewhere. It was before you were 12, for sure. Um, we asked her what, you know, she'd like. And I don't know if we asked her explicitly or it came out, but what would you like for a, a birthday present? Now, come on. How many nine or ten-year-old little girls asked for this as a birthday? What do you think she asked for? Nine Barbie dolls? No, not at all. Uh, three new dresses? One new dress? A pair of shoes? Nope, none of the above. What Ruth Lappin asked for was a cat. <laughs> a, a cat register. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And so... Um, you know, I, uh, by this time I was getting to, to know number five, Lapinette. And so, uh, you know, I didn't go to a toy store. I went to an office supply store <laughs> and uh, I got her a full-size store. I think it was a, ca was it a Casio model. Um, I got her a full-size <laughs> regular cash register. <laughs> and um, and, and this, this, this continued and, and perhaps later on, and she's, she's with me now, and I, I did want to talk a little bit and, and hope that you would delight in her company as much as I do. Uh, and then afterwards, we'll, we'll go on to some of the other topics that uh, I'm waiting to share with you on this podcast, and that you'll, if you look in the description of the podcast, you'll see exactly what will be coming up. But, uh, but right now, um, I, I did want to uh, share with you some of the delights I experience in uh, having time together with my wonderful daughter, uh, Ruthie Lappin, but now Ruthie Abraham, because uh, she uh, she got married, I'm going to say, eight years ago. Yeah. Now, uh, I hope you don't mind, but I do want to tell the story of your husband's subterfuge. Before we move on, look, um, uh, she had met and was dating this very nice young man, um, a, uh, as far as I knew, an American Jew, but then it turned out that uh, he'd been born in, he born, was born in Israel, uh, but came back to, to parents who were themselves Americans, and uh, he came back to the United States, and he was um, a very successful entrepreneur, and he'd been studying in the United States, met my daughter Ruthie, and at, at one point he asked me, he said, you know, I would like, I mean, is it okay with you if, if I date Ruthie, seriously. I mean, I'd like to know if we sort of moved ahead. He was sort of trying to say, would I, would we have your blessing? And I respected that in him very much. And I said, look, um, I'm going to be very direct with you. And I said, uh, I'm sure the American Jewish community is filled with many, many fathers who would be delighted if their daughter married someone and went to live in Israel. I just want you to know I'm not one of them. <laughs> I I don't want my daughters far away. I like them. I love them. I want them to be near. So if Israel is part of your plan, you know, you should tell me now. And, and I, I, I don't think this is a good match for either of you. It's just not going to be a good thing. And it wasn't just my selfishness, by the way, Ruthie. It was also the fact that 
you were the one daughter out of six daughters that we could be in, uh, and we were in, in um, um, AA, American Alliance of Jews and Christians. Remember, we were at many events. Uh, we held conferences in uh, Washington, D.C., in Texas, and all over the place. And there were times when you, I mean, you were like 14 years old or something, and you'd come over to mommy and me and say, do you see that woman at the other end of the room? She's wearing a Chanel dress. Um, or uh, you'd, uh, you'd, you'd point to somebody else and say, take a look at her shoes. They are, uh, what's that maker? Uh, yeah, <laughs> there was some famous maker you identify. I mean, you really knew the fashion business. You dressed fashionably. You looked fashionably. So I just thought to myself, you know what? Israel is a rough and ready country. I mean, in Israel, if somebody you know, pulls on a pair of sneakers and uh, a pair of jeans and a tank top, they're dressed. I mean, that's, that's Israel. So this did not seem to me to be the place for you at all. <laughs> so your, um, your, your, your man says to me, he says, you know, look, he says, I can't say never because who knows what the – and I said, yeah, fair enough. I understand. But he said, but certainly for the next five years, we're, we're not going anywhere. Remember, that's what he mm -hmm. said to me. Mm -hmm. And so I said to myself, okay, fine. You know what? In five years' time, you get settled. You're starting to make progress in your uh, career. And, uh, you know, these five years, I, I think I'm okay. Five years, you're not – after five years – in America, settled, building a home, um, you know, maybe a baby. On uh, you're not going anywhere. So I said to him, "Okay, that's that's fine. I agree. Uh, if you're not going anywhere for five years, you may go ahead and take everything seriously." So it didn't take very long before you got engaged, and then you got married, and then a year later you picked up and moved to Israel. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? It was done. <laughs> So that was kind of more or less when we began, uh, and, and you know, Mommy and I had not been regular Israel visitors at all. Um, when we did, when we took family vacations, as we tried to do every summer, it was always a boating trip. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we felt that um, there was a very special quality to family got from being together on a small boat for the summer, and that's what we came to see. So we didn't visit Israel on any time. But then you moved here, and... Uh, and sure enough, we began to come regularly, and so we thank you for having us here every year. And uh, here we are, that time of year, we're, we're here. So uh, your perspective on, uh, on things before we get down to business. So I would have to say that how you felt was actually the reason for why we chose to come when we did. To get, to get away from me? No, no, how you felt about, oh, in five years from now, they'll be settled, they won't pick up and move then. And um, for both of us, it was not something we had anticipated doing. And you're right, out of all of the family members, I'm definitely the, vote, the one voted least likely to ever move to Israel. Um, my uh, command of the Hebrew language is very much proof of that, considering I have very little command of it. And, um, but when at, right after we had gotten married, we had started talking about, obviously, what kind of a home we wanted to build, what kind of family we wanted to build, what values were important to us. And, uh, and I have to say, the, um, a very big character trait that I inherited from you and my mother um, was living your ideals and living your values and not accepting this idea of we believe something to be right and we believe something to be true, but we're going to live life in a, in a manner different or separate from that. 
And so what started happening is we were a young couple living in Manhattan, just starting our life together. And we started thinking, well, is this really where we want to be? Not because we didn't love it, because we did. I mean, for me, Manhattan was, you know, coming from a small Seattle, Manhattan was amazing. Uh, so what were <laughs> this, I'm, I think I may be discovering things that I've forgotten or maybe things I never even knew. But, but so there you are living in, uh, in Manhattan. You've been married just a few months. It's in the, the very early phase of your marriage. I'm enjoying you guys being married. Everything is good. Um, and and I'm, I'm okay, you know, and you, you guys aren't picking up and moving anywhere. All my daughters are close by within reach. I'm, I'm happy. And then, and then something happened. Uh, what was it? Stay tuned. Quick pause here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Right after that, back to my daughter, uh, Ruthie Lappin, Ruthie Abraham now uh, living in Israel. How did she get here? And what is the amazing business that she's built up since she's living in Israel, really exploiting all the benefits of Startup Nation, of the entrepreneurial spirit that runs through the very blood flow of the land of Israel. Back in just a moment, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Don't go away. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. America WK with your host, Andrew WK. Much more we can do to improve our lives by working from the inside out. Really, no problem can be solved from the outside in. And even if it is solved, it's just some type of band-aid. We have to heal things, fix things, improve things from the center, from the core. And that actually begins in us, not in anyone else. America WK, Saturdays, 10 a.m. to noon on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back. Moving on with episode 12 of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, uh, recording this in Jerusalem, Israel, where uh, my wife and I are visiting with our daughter, Ruthie, and uh, her husband, Asher, and their, oh my goodness, their number one cute son, uh, this kid wins the cuteness sweepstakes. I want to tell you something. Um, and, oh my goodness, he's uh, he's too much. But um, uh, so there you are, living happily uh, in in your honeymoon year in in Manhattan. Uh, I'm feeling comfortable because my daughter and son-in-law are not planning on picking up and moving to Israel at least for five years. So everything is cool. Everything is blooming in the Lappin family garden. No worries. No clouds on the horizon. All is sunshine and birds singing. When all of a sudden, back to you, Ruthie. So, I mean, basically for us, it, it was just as sudden as you're explaining it right now. We kind of looked around at our life and, and we said, is this where we see the representation of our Judaism and our spirituality being fulfilled? And if not, then what are we waiting for? Because at that time, we kind of started saying, well, we should find a community and become a part of something. We should consider buying a house. We should do all the things that a typical uh, newlywed couple kind of start to consider as they start to um, enter, you know, the, the years of their marriage. So we looked around and said we would hate to wake up in 30 years from now and still be sitting somewhere in America being like, well, why didn't we go after it if that's what we truly believed was right for us? Um, so... 
that was kind of the extent of the conversation we had around it. We really didn't think beyond that and say, well, what are we going to do there? How are we going to adjust to the culture? What's our, you know, um, career life going to look like, our community life, etc." We basically, I think we were on a plane four months later, <laughs> and the memory that sticks out for us of that whole process was when we had to actually sit you down and tell you guys that we were moving. And after we told you what, you know, what our plans were. Yeah, that's right. Tell, <laughs> tell, remind me how I reacted. Was I completely calm and gentle? Well, of course, Ruthie, whatever you guys want is fine with me. Is that exactly how it went down? Not quite, and I think we've repeated this line several times over the past few years as people ask us, oh, what do your parents think of you being here? Um, and you looked at us and you said, well, we're happy that you're following your dreams. We just wish it was a different dream. <laughs> so <laughs> as a young couple, that was definitely a concerning thought <laughs> and a concerning thing to be communicated to us. Um, but, but that's really, and like I said, I, I kind of, in a way, blame you guys for it because we were just doing what we had seen, what I had seen you done my whole life is when you had something you believed was true or a value that you believed um, was important, you went after it. You didn't, you didn't hold back and say, well, this isn't what other people are doing in our community. This isn't how other people or the majority of people are acting. And so when we kind of were faced with where would our Judaism flourish the best and where would our life and quality of life be the, the highest, and the answer was Israel, we kind of said, okay, that's what we need to do. And that was kind of the end of the conversation, at least on that side of the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, but were you aware then or, or did you become aware later of how incredibly proud we were of, of not only what you did, um, as you say, following your, your vision, following your, your values. Um, but were you aware of how proud we were of, of how you adapted and, and what an amazing wife you, you became mm -hmm. and, um, and, and how you, yes, how you adapted. Look, I mean, moving from New York to California is a big move. You know? Moving from California to Seattle is a, a big move. Uh, your mom made this big move from New York to the West Coast. That was a big move. Then as a family, we made a move from California to the Pacific Northwest. Also, I mean, these were big moves, but a move from New York to Israel could, I mean, it's a different culture. It's, now, it's, a, it's, the same, it's the same sort of Judeo-Christian set of values. It's, it's, it's a biblical you know, you grew up very biblically oriented, obviously, uh, and so you're now living in a neighborhood where, for God's sake, the, the street names are all out of the Bible. I mean, it's the most, you get a lump in your throat. It's the most amazing thing. <laughs> you know, you walk down a street named after Joshua. In fact, in fact, all the streets around where you and Ushul live um, are named after biblical military heroes. Um, one after the other. It's, it's quite remarkable. So in that sense, it's not alien. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a language you weren't brought up in. It, you were very, very fluent and articulate in English, as, as everybody can hear. Um, you have not adapted uh, to Hebrew. Um, your your four-year-old son, my uh, extremely, extremely good-looking and clearly brilliant uh, grandson. Now, he, at this point, I think he's close to speaking more Hebrew than you do. By far. That's not even a question. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know what, 
yeah, it's these things you never know when you're growing up and you're studying the Hebrew language. No one ever told you someday you're going to have to know how to order groceries in that language. And like I said, I was, you know, voted least likely to ever need the language of Hebrew. So, um, it, and, you know, just like I don't have a head for, for math necessarily, I definitely don't have a head for languages. And so I would say the adjustment is ongoing. Um, but uh, but we feel really, really blessed and grateful that we made the move when we made it and that we kind of didn't run it through this this checklist of, you know, is it the right thing for us to do? Are we going to be able to succeed there? Are all the things going to line up? Is it going to be easy, you know, et cetera? Because if we had, there's just no way it would have ever come to fruition. We would have never ended up here. Um, so in a way, we're, we're really grateful that we had some naivete and we just kind of got on the plane and landed and uh, and it's taken a few years to get on our feet but uh, now that we're here we believe very strongly that our quality of life here is uh, just as high as it could possibly be for us so we're really really happy so uh, amazingly you've been living here for seven years I it was hard for me when I did the arithmetic uh, honestly, if I, 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 it sort of feels like maybe three or four, but it's, it, it is seven years. So you've been living here for seven years. You've been back to the States uh, many mm-hmm. times in between, obviously. But um, let, me, let me ask you this. And ladies and gentlemen, by the way, is this one articulate young lady? Um, and she, she's not 30 years old. I don't think she's 25 years old. <laughs> are, are you I know. I just <laughs> had a birthday. I'm in the <laughs> upper half of the 20s. Okay. Well, she's, she's, she's not 30 yet, but um, very beautiful, very articulate, an unbelievable wife, unbelievable mother. And what we really are going to talk about is uh, <laughs> a competent, effective, successful entrepreneur in her own right. We're going to talk about that. But uh, first of all, I'd love to know, like, what are some of the things you really miss about the United States? You grew up loving the United States of America, as we all do. I'm sure you still do. You're deeply uh, aware and, and, and enmeshed emotionally with the history of the United States, the Christianity of the founders, and the, the biblical principles on which the country was established by its original founders. Uh, you've been saddened over the years to watch uh, a decline in, in so many aspects of, of American life. But uh, with all of that said, here you are living in Jerusalem, Israel. What are some of the things that, that you miss tremendously about America? And Nordstrom's is not allowed <laughs> to be part of the answer. <laughs> well, that's not fair. That's obviously number one. But, no, I mean, I, I think like you said, I was brought up with such a love for America, and it was so much a part of our of our family life. And it wasn't just a love, but it was uh, being taught to have gratitude for where we lived and for what the country stood for and what it gave us. And uh, and to this day, I, I tell people and I joke with my friends here that I'm more American than apple pie. Like, that's just how I feel at the core. And um, I'm a big country music fan. <laughs> I still play that in my house here. And, you know, that that is kind of who I am. And so... What I miss is just that, that Americanism feel, right? And that's what feels like home to me. And when I get homesick, I'm feeling homesick for the culture and the people who I understand and who really were so much a part of me for so long. Um, but in terms of what I miss, I mean, I really think people have to look at this country with, with open eyes and understand that we are so blessed that only 60-some years into this country, we have everything we need. 
And, you know, if it, amongst the Anglos who live there here and the expats, there's a lot of conversation about missing things like Target or Costco or some of the conveniences of an American lifestyle that, yes, does not exist over here. But at the same time, I think when you look at how far we've come as a country, I can't in all honesty sit here and, and, and kind of whine and say, here are all the things I miss because it, it, we just have so much pride for what we've accomplished as a country and as a culture together in this short time that, um, that there's, not, there's not a lot that I could put on that list. Um, but I will say, um, Asher and I, every, every few months, I would say, we kind of have this moment where we go through a little bit of weakness and we have these I Miss America, you know, conversations. And it's usually when we, when we come across a culture that just feels especially foreign because Israel's a unique place and not only does it have Jewish culture, but it has a very strong immigrant culture. And so you have, you have immigrants from all over, from Africa, from Russia, from just so many parts of the world that uh, the way the norms of behaving here really are so foreign for a girl who comes from Seattle, you know? And so I always tell people, like, I'm from the West Coast. I don't understand the language of yelling at people, right? But that's very commonplace here. You know, two guys could be yelling in the street, and then five minutes later, they're hugging, and they're telling each other to tell their moms they say hi, right? And to me, that's very disturbing, because I, I, I clearly assume something horrible is happening if there are grown men yelling in the street. Um, so really, when it comes down to what I miss, that's, that's what I feel, is, is just understanding the culture. And, um, you know, in America, you have this this just feeling of competency. You're an adult in a country that you grew up in that you understand everything. You understand the nuances. You understand the language. You understand the culture. And uh, and that definitely does not exist here for me. So it's kind of as if I'm being reborn every single day with new experiences. Um, but in terms of the material things, we just have to be so grateful for, for what, they, what, what does exist here. And even in the short seven years that we've been here, I've seen such an increase in um, and just the development of certain products, certain products being made available here, new kinds of stores cropping up, more of a focus on customer service, all kinds of things that 10 years ago were really unheard of in Israel. So, so that, you know, and like I said, Nordstrom is definitely at the top of the list. Um, when we come back, I, I want to ask Ruthie uh, whether there are any ways in which she feels that uh, because she's in a country that is in its infancy, it's a country that's just about 60 years old, uh, started in 1948, but in the s at the same time it's a country rooted in 3,000 years of biblical history and tradition. So it's a kind of a mix, but whether she feels that uh, as a couple, she and her husband can make more of a contribution to the evolving culture, whereas America is an already shaped entity in a sense see what she says about that coming back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. My website, youneedarabbi.com, www.youneedarabbi.com. Make sure you are uh, subscribed to the free email, Thought Tools. Uh, do, do that because that's one of the ways we let you know uh, what might be happening on this podcast or, or other podcasts, letting you know when I'll be speaking in your town and appearing there. So uh, just put yourself on that mailing list, youneedarabbi.com. When we come back, uh, a little more of Ruthie, and, uh, and then we'll hear about her business and what it is that, that she does and how she does it. Stay right there like General Douglas MacArthur. I shall return. <laughs> 
You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Buck Sexton. He's going to get the Clarence Thomas treatment, if you will. He's going to be treated terribly by the left and by the press and by so many who think that it's necessary to propagate this narrative of, well, if you're black in this country, you have to be a Democrat or else you are a traitor to your own ideals. You're a traitor to your race. This is what is said about people like Clarence Thomas. Buck Sexton, weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. I'm your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And the relationship between a father and his daughters, that's something that never changes and uh, how wonderful it is in this, the 12th episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, Up on the Blaze. Uh, how wonderful that uh, while I'm taping in Jerusalem, Israel, I'm able to have as a special guest on this podcast uh, my daughter Ruthie. She's Lappinette number five. She's the fifth Lappin daughter. Tucked in there somewhere is one Lappin son. And, uh, and how, how do you maintain close contact with siblings with uh, thousands of miles intervening? Yeah, that's a hard one, actually. But the truth is, you know, thanks to modern technology, my cell phone has a U.S. phone number. I can call out to the U.S. like a local call. They can call me with a local U.S. number. So we try to keep up. And the truth is, is that our bonds are so strong that even if we go a week or two without talking, then the next time we talk, it's as if, you know, we were right there with each other. So, and the truth is we also use WhatsApp a lot, you know, getting to send each other little quick hellos and little messages um, really makes it easy. And in the, the distance kind of melts away in a sense, uh, especially w- when I use technology for my business as well. Uh, we really see the world as this global place and, and less of, oh, you live in this country and I live in that country and more great you know we have so many ways to to talk and communicate we just have to be aware of the time zone sometimes doesn't she sound articulate folks wouldn't you agree i mean she's she's talking completely naturally there's no notes she's waving her arms in the air as she's talking there's a big smile on her face and she's just gabbing on there completely naturally and, and easily um, I'd, I'd like to be able to say well you're my daughter you're a bit there's probably more to it than that i'm sure well, I did grow up listening to you on the radio, so that definitely helps. Um, no, but I think it's actually, it's almost pathetic, but uh, given my lack of the language here and my inability to communicate with so many people in my daily life, uh, I just love talking English yeah. to people. I just love being able to express myself, and sometimes it gets a little too much for my husband, so I find other outlets, such as this, that I get to just talk and share uh, everything that, that goes on for me in my brain and everything that I want to kind of communicate to you. Well, uh, bef- before we go on to your business, let's just talk about your podcast. You've got a podcast as well, right? So uh, uh, tell folks about that because I'm telling you right now there's thousands and thousands of people falling in love with you right now. So for those folks who, who want to hear even more from Ruthie Lappin, Ruthie Abraham, um, talk about your podcast for a moment. Yeah, so it's called the B2B Marketing Podcast. And um, I really saw an opening in the marketplace uh, for education and knowledge that people really were, were looking for and seeking. 
and there just weren't too many places where someone could go for kind of a jargon-free conversation about ideas and information that they needed to be able to implement in their daily work life. So I started this podcast, and I've started it since being here. It's almost, uh, it'll be a year old in January, and it's called the B2B Marketing Podcast. You can find it on iTunes. And again, in, in a kind of selfish manner, I started it because I wanted to be able to have a conversation with someone, and, um, and I want that conversation to be in English, and I wanted to be able to have that conversation kind of on my home turf, and, and like I spoke about, I do feel so American, and, uh, and even now as a dual citizen, I really still hold my American part of me so strongly, and it's such a part of who I am, so uh, this was a way to contribute and to give back and to communicate and express ideas that I'm immersed in daily because of the, the work that we do at our marketing agency, and, uh, and as well just to have somebody to talk to, even if it's just a microphone, right? So I get to share my ideas in English, and uh, my husband's ears get a little bit of a break sometimes, and, and we have a lot of fun, so. So there it is, uh, the B2B marketing the b2b mar- and that's letter b number two letter b marketing podcast mm-hmm. and uh, youtube so um now so jumping back uh 10 years or so you were 15 years old and um um you are homeschooling so obviously your 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 schedule uh, is uh, is is somewhat flexible as, as it was with all your siblings and we're living on an island near seattle and uh, a Curves Women's Exercise franchise opens up, and um, a sign goes up saying "looking looking for staff or looking for a manager." I don't know. I don't remember what it said. But uh, the next thing is, turns out you come home and tell us uh, you've applied to manage this new Curves franchise, and um, we were, um, you know. Knowing your amazing competence, even at that age, we were not surprised, but we didn't want to spoil the dream. We didn't want to say to you, Ruthie, I don't think that a franchise meant to cater to middle-aged ladies on a regular exercise basis, you know, or let's say politely, a certain demographic, <laughs> shall we, uh, is, is going to hire a 15-year-old uh, kid to, to manage and, and run that thing. But we didn't want to spoil the dream or anything, so... We're okay, you know, we, we let you uh, get along with that. And then um, I think if what I, and you'll be able to correct me, but what I recall is uh, that they asked you uh, if there wouldn't be any conflict with school or you mentioned something about school. They thought, as, as is often the case in the States, the word school doesn't necessarily mean K through 12. It could also mean college or university. So the people interviewing you <laughs> from the franchise are assuming that the word school means college, so they're thinking you're, uh, you're uh, you know, in the last year or two of college, but you come across as, as much older than 15, and meanwhile you think you've conveyed perfectly adequately that, that you know, you, you're at school, but you have flexible hours, so a perfectly innocent misunderstanding. And then uh, they go ahead and they, uh, they want to get your social security number and driver's license so they can put you on payroll, at which point they discovered to their shock that you are 15. But by that time, you've been running the place for the last two weeks already. You've built up business. You're running around the island posting uh, flyers under people's windshields telling them about this, and and business is booming. These people are nuts about you, and the last thing they want to do is lose you. So um, they discover that 
your mother can apply for a work waiver so that they can go get by with all of the child labor laws. And sure enough, uh, that all gets uh, okayed. The paperwork is approved, and you are managing uh, the Curb franchise uh, in the state of Washington. H how did that all go down? So, yeah, I was actually a little younger than 15. I was just about 14. And in addition to the school piece of it, they had asked me a question about the family, and I had made a reference to my brother. And at one point, I must have mentioned his age. And then in a later point, a few minutes down in the conversation, I mentioned that he was my older brother. And she kind of had this moment where she was doing the math in her head and figuring out, how can you have a brother who's 16 if, if you're a 21-year-old or whatever the assumption was, right? So it was kind of like all pause, you know, went on. And, and it, was, it, it took a moment for me just to explain the scenario of, oh, actually, you know, I'm 14 years old, etc. cetera. Um, but you're right. We, we had to get a, uh, a permit to let me work, to, you know, for me to be given the privilege of, of, of getting this job. And I was running this, um, this gym, and in fact, it was actually a commission job. So my first, you know, I, call, I say real job outside of the family, the family office and, you know, the business that I would help out with you. But my first real job was a commission-based sales job where I had to sign up these women to the gym and then manage the gym throughout the course of the day. And, uh, yeah, at, at that time, I had I, – I, everyone assumed I was older, whether it was the way I carried myself or just my the way I looked. I'm hoping now that I'll work to my advantage. I'll start looking younger and younger as the years go on, but we'll see how that plays out. But at that time, people just – you know, it, it's kind of like the fake it until you make it approach. People just – they just see what you put out there to the world. And so whatever, you know, I was putting out to the world, people just kind of assumed – that um, that I was of a certain age and had lived a certain you know uh, life up until then, etc. But the truth is, it was the best experience of my life. I, I couldn't have asked for a better schooling or education than than being out there in the real world and dealing with real rejection, dealing with real objections. Um, signing up a woman to a gym is never an easy sell. So there was definitely. Um, life lessons, we should say, that came with that experience, and it, it really set me off on the path that I've been on ever since, so I have nothing but gratitude and just so, so much, you know, happiness that all the pieces fell into place however they needed to, that, you know, the, the owners of the franchise were willing to take a risk on me, they were willing to, uh, to get waivers signed, and, you know, the government involved, and that you guys as my parents were willing to sign off on, uh, on this kind of unconventional to say the least, uh, set up. But I think it worked well for everyone involved. And it surely didn't. They w I remember how sad they were to lose you when uh, I think you then uh, um, moved, you went to do some schooling in New York for a little while. And uh, I think people are going to be astounded to hear when we talk about all the advanced degrees you possess in, in English communications, business, finance, we'll... Uh, We'll talk about your remarkable academic prowess. <laughs> it's not easy to make her blush, folks, but uh, we'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But um, uh, what I'd like you to do is start – now, okay, your, the name of your company now uh, is The Brand Builders, plural, and the website is thebrandbuilders.co, C-O, not com, thebrandbuilders.co. Mm -hmm. And um, – 
What I, uh, I want to do, as soon as we come back in just a moment, is I want you to sell me on, on using your services. I'm just a, a regular, uh, one of millions of small business professionals in the United States of America. You are this company in Israel called thebrandbuilders.co, and uh, I want you to proceed to sell me. Tell, me. tell me why I need your services. What are you going to do for me? What does the brand builders do? And then once we've got a hang of exactly what it is you do and why we need you, uh, then we'll come back to how you started the company, how it grew, and, uh, and you know, how does a young female entrepreneur manage in the macho land of Israel? This is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. As you can tell, I'm having the time of my life interviewing Lappinette number five. Uh, Ruthie is my fifth daughter and somebody of whom Susan and I are enormously proud. Uh, we, um, we're, we're, we're frankly, we're, uh, we find her performance as a wife, as a mother, and as an entrepreneur literally breathtaking. Uh, she leaves us quite speechless. A uh, quick pause, and um, when we come back, Ruthie is going to sell us on the need we have for her company's services. Stay right here. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. When's the last time a candidate withdrew from a presidential race and unions sent out press releases to giggle, cackle about it, mock him, and say he deserves it? Glad he's out of there. He's an embarrassment. I mean, what engenders in the left such antipathy for Scott Walker? And the answer is they... Since the day he was elected, he was fighting the union leadership. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Okay. Welcome back, and thank you so much for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. No, not just listening to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. I see you as being part of it because uh, I am obsessively preoccupied with every single download, with every single listen, and uh, I don't know exactly who you are unless you email me, and uh, you do that by going to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, hitting the Contact Us tab. I read them all, and many of you have discovered I respond to uh, a good number as well. And so uh, I see you very much as part of the show, not just listening passively, but uh, I expect feedback from you. I expect uh, interaction. And uh, even more importantly, knowing that you're there and my heart leaps joyfully at every single new download, every single new listener, every single new follower at Twitter, at Daniel Lappin or at Facebook, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Uh, that um, that it stimulates and encourages the the podcast very much indeed. Uh, this is the twelfth episode, and we are uh, taping fr- in Jerusalem, Israel, right now. Uh, it is the Jewish High Holy Days. Started off with Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, and um, moved on to Yom Kippur. Ten days later was the Day of Atonement, and. Uh, then moving right from there into Sukkot, or the seven-day tabernacle festival. Uh, all of these laid out as the biblical feasts, all very clearly. Uh, Leviticus 23, for those of you interested, and uh, 
otherwise it is a, uh, a joyful holiday period. This is the period in Israel that corresponds to, uh, you know, December, shall we say, December the 20th to January the 3rd or something like that. You know, people already have a festive mood as Christmas approaches, New Year, that whole period. Well, in Israel, it's the period of the month of Tishrei, which in uh, each year falls out a little bit differently, but usually in the September, always somewhere in the September, October uh, region. <coughs> and uh, Susan and I very much enjoying our visit to Israel because it gives us a chance to spend time with our uh, daughter, Ruthie, number five daughter, and uh, her husband, son-in-law, exemplary, uh, Asher, and uh, their ridiculously cute four well he's just about five isn't he mm -hmm. coming on for five years old so um, Ruthie is uh, a splendid wife a magnificent mother a relatively recent immigrant to Israel and um, I um, and and an entrepreneur uh, she has her own company she began and uh, we're enormously impressed I mean it is uh, it's, it's thriving and successful and uh, obviously serving people because she's making money. And so, Ruthie, I imagine now I'm a, a mid-sized American entrepreneur, s small to medium business professional, somewhere in the United States. I hear about your company, um, The Brand Builders, The Brand Builders, and your website, thebrandbuilders.co. And now I want you to, uh, to tell me why I would need, like, sell me on your services. So I hate to flip that around on you, but uh, we, we choose to serve over sell. That's a, that's a value of ours at the company, and, uh, and that's not kind of something we just throw out there and it's something that's sitting on our website. It's actually truly how we do marketing best. So the Brand Builders is an online marketing agency, and what we do is we look to serve our customers and educate them and inform them about the state of online marketing today. And then we really turn it on them and we say, well, tell us what made you seek out a marketing agency. Um, tell us what brought you to us. How can we help you? How can we serve you? And for a lot of times, a lot of the people we speak with, that ends up in several hour-long conversations over the course of a few weeks. And in the end, it doesn't even necessarily end up with us working with them. It could be that we have a different recommendation for them. We want to, you know, set them down a different path. It could be that our services don't answer the need and the problem and the, and the challenge that they're looking to solve. So for us, it really comes from this place of serving. How can we serve you? And then for those companies who it is the right fit to move forward with us, we pose that question to them and we say, how can you serve your prospects and customers? And that's the kind of marketing that we have such a passion for engaging with. Um, you know, we work with companies who got into business because they believe very much as we do that being in business is an honorable way to serve your fellow man. And they're solving a problem for them. They are offering a service. They're offering something that can benefit somebody's life, whether that's in a B2B setting, whether it's in a you know, consumer, direct-to-consumer setting. And so what we do as a marketing agency is we look to illuminate that. We look to create that conversation. How can you express to your prospects and customers that you truly want to serve them, right? So uh, one way 
that we do this is a kind of marketing called inbound marketing. And it very much stems around this idea of, listen, we can talk about what we do and we can talk about our services and we can tell you our prices. But first, why don't you tell us what you're struggling with? Why don't you tell us what your challenge is? And let's first seek to educate you. Because today's landscape has shifted. And as a consumer, we've become savvier and smarter. And what happens now when you're faced with a challenge, for instance, you've got your website out there and you're thinking, well, how can I drive leads to, you know, from this website? How can I sell more of my product? And what you're going to do is you're going to do what we've all been taught to do over the past 10, 15 years is we're going to turn to the Internet. And we're going to actually ask that question into a search engine. We're going to ask Google, how do I drive traffic to my website, right? And what we're finding nowadays is consumers are trying to solve the problem for themselves before they even want to talk to anyone at a company, right? And that's why the, the kind of this idea of telemarketing, it just doesn't even, it's laughable. It doesn't exist anymore, even if that's translated into uh, tele-emailing, right? Like, none of that exists. This idea, no one, no one wants to be bombarded by something. The idea is, I'll come to you when I have a problem, and I'll seek out my answer, and if you're part of that answer, great. So that's what we look to do. We look to be part of the answer. We look to put education and information out there. So uh, if you were coming to me and said, you know, great, sell me on your services, I would say, well, no can do. Like, there, there's really nothing for me to sell you on. Why don't we talk about what are you struggling with? What are some goals you have in your business over the next 12 months? What are some goals you have for the business over the next five years? Oh, okay, so you're looking to, you know, double your revenue. Okay, well, why don't we talk about what you're doing now and how's that working? What kind of results are you getting with the efforts you're putting out there? And we might um, kind of proceed with the conversation, and I might just share with you a few ideas, uh, ideas that you could take and execute and implement on your own and completely cut us out of the conversation. And truthfully, there's nothing that makes us happier than when that happens because it allows us to take our expertise and the gifts that we have, and it allows us to serve you as a business owner. And I, I truly feel that the knowledge that I've accrued about marketing and online marketing and how to grow a business, that shouldn't be stuck behind a paywall. That, that's my gift to be able to share with the world and to be able to share with everyone. That's part of the reason uh, for, for the, the, me starting the podcast. But similarly, when I talk to people who are interested in discussing marketing, uh, I never want somebody's lack of education to get in the way of them making a living for, living for themselves and their, their company and their organization, right? So we look to give away as much information and as much education as possible. And for a, a very small number of people, we reach the end of that, of that kind of interaction and long, and long engagement and conversation, and they say, great, you're the ones we want to execute and implement on these ideas. But for a great majority of the people that we speak with, they say, wow, thank you. You've opened up my mind to things that I've never thought about, and now we're going to take this and execute it. And we come from this uh, perspective that we very much believe in the expertise that you as a business owner have. We have expertise in your product you sell, whether you're a manufacturing plant, whether you're a business services or supplies company, you have an expertise. Chances are you started this company or it's a family business, you've been in it for a long time. And we respect that expertise so much and we really see our place in the picture as taking that expertise, packaging it, and putting it out there to the world and to the people who you want to be sharing that with. So. Uh, we really see marketing as a partnership, 
and as a relationship between the companies. This isn't outsourced marketing. This isn't somebody doing, you know, your social media updates for you. This is somebody who wants to link arms with you, come into your business, understand every facet of it and try to absorb as much of your expertise as we can while doing the same for you and sharing everything we know. You know, our, our objective, you could say in a sense, is to um, pass over so much that we know that you would be ready to take the baton and run with it and say, great, thanks, you know, Ruthie and the Brand Builders team. You've given us everything we need to know. We're going to now go out there and hire five people, set up a marketing team for ourselves and run with it. Uh, you know, and then for the companies whom it makes sense to, to continue working with us, it's also our greatest joy to just be able to continually serve them and uh, take companies that we believe are the backbone of America and the backbone of the global economy and put them where they need to be to be able to continue growing and creating a, uh, a wonderful living for them, for themselves, for the entire organization, for their employees, and it just gives us a lot of joy to be able to do that. Uh, this is... Uh the daughter that Susan and I uh, brought into the world and raised, and uh, she has now uh, just galloped ahead and uh, is doing amazing things with her company based out of Jerusalem, Israel, um, called The Brand Builders. The Brand Builders, and their website is not .com but .co, so it's thebrandbuilders.co. And... Um, uh, am I right that all your clients are in the United States, which is, is that, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I could be uh, sitting in the United States, my art designer could be in India, my website consultant could be in Tel Aviv, my, uh, uh, my uh, bookkeeper could be somewhere else. I mean, it, it, it's really remarkably connected. Uh, tell me where your clients are and tell me whether there are areas of, of business, in your view, where you just absolutely do need face-to-face, -face, or, or can you get, get by without that today? So, yeah, most of our clients are located in the United States. Um, it's definitely just where our area of expertise is, both from a language perspective and just a, a cultural perspective. So I love doing business with, um, with fellow Americans and, and business owners there. And um, no, I mean, it's, it's truly incredible that we're living in a global economy. And I think it's something actually that um, being an American, living in America, sometimes you miss out on this understanding of how big the world is and how few barriers there actually needs to be. Uh, so we do run the company from Jerusalem, Israel, and it's really exciting for me that we get to be an Israeli corporation. We get to pay our corporate taxes to the state of Israel and help do our part there to build it up. Um, but at the same time, the, the clients that we're interfacing with are uh, those that we enjoy working with and whose business and, um, you know, we have an understanding of, of it. So that's, that's wonderful. And, um, yeah, it's just – it's a global economy. And the truth is when it comes to face-to-face -to -face business versus digital business, I think there is definitely – times and industries in which face-to-face -face is very critical. And it's, it's actually interesting because we tend to work with a lot of companies who um, their marketing might have been old school in the past or it's old school currently, and they're kind of moving it forward and pushing it into the realm of online modern marketing. And so a lot of these companies utilize trade shows, which we, we believe that trade shows can be utilized in very effective ways in today's you know modern approach to marketing, but at the same time they can be digitized and there are a lot of reasons that you can create the experience of meeting somebody but through a digital portal instead of a face-to-face. -face. So 
for our purposes, we have not encountered any challenge with being a virtual agency by way of uh, not necessarily meeting our clients. I have clients that we've worked with for several years already who we have never met in person. And I just, I have to tell you, our relationships could not be stronger. We would do anything for them and they would do anything for us. And there's a closeness there. And, um, and uh, you know, for some, that might not be a good fit. For some companies might want their marketing agencies local and close because they want to call them in for meetings. They want to sit down. But I actually think because of that, there's such efficiency to the communication that we have with our clients. There's easy access and we're reachable. But there's, you know, we don't have any of these long drawn out meetings where we're going to throw a, a fancy PowerPoint on the wall and then sit there and take up everyone's time. We are very focused on when we need to speak with you, on when we're having a conference call, on what documents and emails we're sending to you. Our internal processes are, you know, down to a T. And I think the challenge of working in a virtual environment has pushed us as an agency to be stronger and better. And the truth is, it's really the direction that marketing's going today. It's very rare that companies work with, uh, with marketing agencies that are local and that are an in-person relationship. So we actually feel that we have lost no edge because of our, our location. Um, and instead, we're, we're thriving because of it, so. Um, Ruthie, uh, is there um, free stuff on your website? In other words, uh, is, does the visitor your website gain insights, learn things, discover things, as you say, before having to go through a paywall? Yeah, so like I said in the beginning, we really, we're here to serve and not sell. So in fact, our entire homepage of our website just is multiple opportunities for you to learn. Uh, it highlights the podcast, it highlights our blog, the Brand Builders blog is, uh, we publish almost daily articles and information that's actionable, that's educational. You'll be able to walk away and have a conversation with someone saying, I now understand what that term means. We really don't believe in this idea of jargon. Um, I think, you know, I'm even sick of it, so I can only imagine how you must be feeling hearing terms that don't necessarily make sense, but yet people want to use them. You know, and, and this whole idea of kind of trendy marketing or all that kind of stuff, we just don't subscribe to that. We really like to be down to earth and talk these ideas through. We understand you're a very educated, successful business person, and there's no reason why we should talk to you at any level other than that. Um, so, yeah, in, in fact, you'd probably be hard-pressed to find a way to say you want to work with us on our, on our, on our, you know, our website right now. Um, it's, it's really there to serve you and, and the, the person who wants to work hard enough to find a way to contact us and, uh, and be in touch and, you know, can, but, but it, we really want to stick to what we believe in serving rather than selling, and, uh, and that's worked for us, so we're going to continue doing that. So uh, take a look at Ruthie's website at thebrandbuilders.co, not .com, thebrandbuilders, uh, one long word, thebrandbuilders.co. And uh, uh, Ruthie, in, in parting, do you have any words of endorsement to say for a particular book on business called Thou Shall Prosper, written by a, a very distinguished author whose name, uh, modesty and humility, prevent me from mentioning? Of course, I would never ask you to, to say that name. But, uh, well, I mean, I have to just say that these were ideas and values that I was raised on. And the reason that I went to work at age 13 and have basically not stopped working since then um, has been because of this, this idea, this belief that money and, um, and relationships and business is a wholly 
you know, it's a holy thing to partake in, and it's a spiritual thing for us. And that's why, for me, business has always been, it's never been this idea of, like, let's go off and get a job and go to work and work a nine-to-five. You know, for both my husband and I, business is something that when we're out on a date night, we're talking about because we believe so strongly in it being a part of our uh, expression of, of religion, of spirituality, and of, of being on planet Earth and, and helping others. And so I would have to say a lot of that came from the book, Thou Shalt Prosper. Um, that book has been on our coffee table since the day we got married. And um, it's been an integral approach and worldview that we've looked to follow. So. And you can see more about Thou Shalt Prosper, um, the book written by Ruthie Lappin, Ruthie Abraham's father. And um, that is at, of course, our website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Take a look at it there. Visit Ruthie's website at thebrandbuilders.co. And isn't she terrific, folks? She's remarkable. And uh, it's no wonder that my wife and I are so extraordinarily proud of her as a daughter, as a mother, as a wife, uh, and as an entrepreneur helping to make Israel even more financially successful than it is already. Thanks so much. And a quick break here and right after that I'm going to be back asking you how come it is fine for men and women to serve together in the United States military because they're indistinguishable but not okay for men and women to play sports together in the United States come on everybody it's one way or the other either men and women are the same or they're not but there is a glaring contradiction in American culture right now and only your rabbi will explain how the world really works. Coming right back. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Matt Walsh. Carly Fiorina performed well. In the debate, her closing statement was compelling. Her answer on Planned Parenthood was, was stirring. Her comeback to Donald Trump's comment about her face she made Donald Trump look like an imbecile, but of course that's not a difficult thing to do. She had good answers on things. I'm still very hesitant about her track record ideologically and because of her business track record. Matt Walsh. Available on demand anytime at theblaze.com slash radio. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network on demand. Hi, everybody. And yes, we're continuing with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, episode 12, as we move on. And uh, let me tell you about a Jewish family in Queens, New York. Uh, there was an orthopedic surgeon. His name was David Raskin. And uh, his wife was a psychiatrist and uh, professor at Columbia University. And um, they had a son. Uh, they had a son, and his name uh, was um, Richard Raskin. Uh, born back in the summer of 1934. And uh, he was, you know, an, uh, an upper-end uh, Manhattan Jewish family. So he went to Horace Mann School. Uh, he played uh, wide receiver for the football team. He was a pitcher for the baseball team. He played tennis and he swam. And uh, 
Then after that, uh, he went on to uh, uh, Yale University. Uh, then he went to the U University of Rochester Medical Center, where he became an ophthalmological uh, specialist. Anyway, the reason I tell you about Richard Raskin is that uh, sometime um, towards the end of his college, I'm not sure exactly when, but it, it was sort of in the, in the mid-60s, um, Robert Raskin decided he wanted to be a, wim a woman. And uh, he was going to go and have uh, gender reassignment surgery, you'll pardon the phrase, uh, in Morocco. And uh, somehow that didn't happen. He decided not to do it. And then he had a, um, a marriage to a woman for a while. They were married for about five years, and together they had a son. Um, and then in the early 1970s, Richard Raskin again uh, decided he was going to have um, surgery. And, um, and sure enough, in 1975, he had surgery and uh, hormone treatment and extensive counseling. And finally, 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 he became, instead of Richard Raskin, he became Rene. And um, then R uh, Rene Richards applied to, um, uh, change, instead of Richard Raskin, he became Rene Richards, get it? And uh, Rene means reborn. He explained that's why he wanted to be called Rene, and like Renaissance, right? And uh, Rene Richards applied to play tennis in the U.S. Open. And they said, no. Um, they said, you've got to have a, uh, uh, a chromosomal um, test to make sure that you are actually a woman. Well, naturally, he refused to take the test, so he was barred from uh, the United States Tennis Association tournaments. And uh, Rene Richards wasn't allowed to play in the U.S. Open, not in Wimbledon, etc., etc., so uh, he then sued, oh, pardon me, all right, she, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> uh, Richards then sued the United States Tennis Association in New York State Court, saying he was being discriminated by gender. And um, a judge heard the case. And uh, would you believe it? Um, judge found in Richards' favor. He said, th this is 1977, by the way. That's how far back this stuff goes. He said, this person is now a female, and that requiring Richards to pass this uh, genetic bar test for chromosomal male or female was grossly unfair, discriminatory, and inequitable, and a violation of uh, his, her rights. The judge further ruled that the United States Tennis Association intentionally discriminated against Richards and granted Richards an injunction against the U.S. Uh, Tennis Association um, and allowing him or her to play in the U.S. Open. Um, Richards lost in the first round of the singles but made it to the finals in doubles. Anyways, uh, the reason I tell you all this is that um, um, she played, she, he played tennis for about four or five years and then uh, gave it up and um, is, uh, went back to, to, to practicing medicine. But here's the interesting thing. Um, he makes a statement 
very, very interesting. And um, he, I've got to find the statement. Uh, he, he says, so um, uh, he says uh, that he's got no doubt. All right, let me, let me read it to you just as she said, he said. Came to believe that her past as a man provided her with advantages over her competitors. And he says, having lived for the past 30 years, I know that if I'd had surgery at the age of 22, and then on th at 24 went into professional tennis, no genetic woman in the world would have been able to come close to me. And so I've reconsidered my opinion on this whole thing. So it's fascinating. So uh, amazingly enough, uh, Richard's then, Richard Raskind or Rene Richard, um, is, uh, is, is remarkably honest and says, look, uh, this is a joke. The fact is genetically and, and muscularly and size-wise, I'm a man, not a woman. And had I done this when I was a bit younger, um, I would have played a, in the women's as a woman, but with a man's body, uh, I'd have killed everybody. There's nobody could have possibly stood up to me. So this is uh, a story that, as I say, goes back to the 60s and 70s. And um, Rene Richards uh, now still, uh, still alive and uh, living upstate New York as uh, with, with a woman who's a lesbian. It's crazy. Don't ask me. And, um, okay, why do I tell you all this? I tell you all this only to bring up another instance, a kind of interesting story. And that is um, that there was a wonderful tennis player around about the time of World War II. His name, his name was Bobby Riggs. And uh, he... Um, he was a very flamboyant character. He was amazingly um, successful as a tennis player. Uh, during the 1940s, uh, he was uh, the number one ranking player. He won six major titles. And uh, after he retired from professional tennis in 51, he still remained very uh, flamboyant. He was a promoter. And in 1973, he... Uh, he went public saying that female tennis was inferior to male tennis. And in other words, the quality of the game, the level of the game that women play was inferior. And that even at his then age of 55, okay, nobody plays professional tennis. You understand that, right? At 55, said Billy Riggs, uh, Bobby Riggs, pardon me, that at the age of 55, he could still beat any of the top female players. So um, Riggs challenged Billie Jean King. Remember, Billie Jean King was, again, a top-ranked female player at the time. She declined. She didn't want to know about it. So then um, Margaret Court was 30 years old at the top of her game. She was the top female player in the world. We're talking about 1973. And um, so Bobby Riggs, at the age of 55, plays Margaret Court at 30 and top female player in the world. Bobby Riggs hasn't played for 20 years. And uh, they played on May the 13th, 1973. And um, it was on Mother's Day. 
Bobby Riggs came out onto the court and gave Margaret Court uh, Mother's Day flowers, which she accepted and curtsied in a very feminine way. And then the match began, and uh, he he beat her six two six one. And I mean that's a it was it was a massacre. Uh, Bobby Riggs, at the age of fifty five, long past his, uh, his the peak of his game. Monica Court Margaret Court at the top of her game. And of course, Bobby Riggs beats her six two six one, and uh, oh, it was all tremendously exciting. This was like all this was Sports Illustrated. Uh, he was on the cover of Time magazine. This was a big, big deal. Then um, what happens is uh, Riggs, Bobby Riggs, continued sort of promoting himself on this idea that uh, the male game is superior to the female game, and. Uh, Finally, uh, a, a very financially rewarding offer for a match uh, was the money was put up, a national televised match, and they called it the Battle of the Sexes, and uh, Riggs taunted uh, female players until finally uh, Billie Jean King okay, was, um, uh, was ready to, to play him. And so... Um, this was a big game. I think it was played in Houston, if I if I, I remember correctly, in the, Astro the, the then old Astrodome. And uh, what happened? Um, Billie Jean King had studied again. Billie Jean King, which was about at the peak of her career, uh, top-ranked player, and uh, Bobby Riggs at the age of 55. Anyway, Billie Jean G King uh, beats him six four six three six three. And um, then uh, Bobby Riggs called for a, a second match as the contract had been originally written. And um, Billie Jean King said, no way. She, and she basically reneged on the contract um, as for, for pretty obvious reasons, right? I mean, she did beat him. She wanted to, she wanted to leave it at that. Um, the likelihood of her beating him again apparently was was very low, and so uh, um, then after that there was a third battle of the sexes because this sort of thing picked up. That was the end of the story of, of Bobby Riggs. But uh, in 1992, um, what happened was a game between Jimmy Connors. Jimmy Connors is now 40 years old in 92, um, hasn't been playing pro tennis for quite a while. Uh, he plays Martina Navratilova, um, who um, uh, was a, uh, a top-ranked female player. Um, she was right that she was right behind Monica Seals, you might remember. Anyways, um, what they did is they changed the rules. You hear me? They changed the rules in favor of Martina Navratilova. The woman player was uh, allowed to hit into half of the doubles court. If, you, if you're familiar with tennis, it's a massive advantage. And Connors was allowed only one serve per point. So that rule didn't apply to her, and she could hit into the uh, half of the doubles court. Do you hear that? It's pretty amazing. And at the end of it, Connors wins seven five six two, and um, Connors beats uh, even with those rules. Why do I tell you all of that? Well, stay tuned because uh, it gets 
really interesting now. Your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lapin, back with you in just a moment. Hold on. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lapin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Don't miss Pat and Stu. A hundred years ago, there was nothing you could do about heat wave except stay away from fat, sweat, sw- uh, smelly, sweaty relatives. Now we Today, can... that would be except stay away from Jimmy. Yes, stay away from Jimmy. Uh, <laughs> now we can do this magic thing called condition the air. Condition <laughs> What? Yeah. 35,000 wow. window air conditioners cost about $2.5 million. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Hi, everybody, and uh, you are listening to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your radio rabbi, reveals how the world really works. And one of the ways in which the world really works is that uh, we do live in a binary world. We live in a world of good and evil. We live in a world of light and darkness. We live in a world of heat and cold. We live in a world where a piece of string has two ends, not three or four or five or one, two ends. We do live in a world that God designed to have an essential two-ness to it. And yes, we do have men and women. However, there is uh, intense social pressure and political agitation to avoid that. And um, it's, it's kind of uh, hypocritical because uh, for years it has been established as a rule in college sports in America that uh, in order for a – basically the government bribes because the government has got involved in education, because we have a department of education in the federal government level, uh, the government has been able to basically control education. One of the requirements is that uh, uh, sports must be provided at every university, equal male and female sports. But um, never, never has anybody suggested, never has anyone seriously attempted that if, what do you mean, why do we have to have separate, why have there got to be male wrestling and female wrestling? Why have there got to be male soccer and female soccer, male, male this and female that? Hey, right, if men and women are all the same, why don't we just have soccer and let who will play will play, that's all? Nobody's ever suggested that. Why? Well, <laughs> because of exactly what I was telling you earlier, which is that an old, retired tennis player wallops of male, wallops young female players at the top of their game. And um, it, it's unavoidable. It's perfectly natural, perfectly normal. <laughs> why, why would you expect it to be any differently? And, and people are uh, you know, somewhat realistic that in spite of the fact that with their mouths they're busy talking of you know, gender equality and everything's the same and there's absolutely no reason for things to be separate and uh, women must now be in combat in the military and that is indeed uh, just about happening in the United States and I'm sure it will be very soon. Uh, but when it comes to sports, no, nobody suggests that. So it just seems hypocritical to me, does it not? 
that on the sports field where the consequences of defeat are mild, women and men are recognized to be substantially different. But on the battlefield where the consequences of defeat are dire, oh, there everything is the same. It's very bizarre. And, uh, and so we're at a point now, as I'm sure you probably already know, that the United States Navy and our Air Force have opened every position to women. Now, why they uh, are not forcing the selective services rule, I simply don't know. Uh, and I, I guess I, I could have researched this more. Uh, but that I simply don't know. Um, it's, it's very, very strange. Um, all American males have to register for what we call the selective service um, right after their 18th birthday. So why are, they, why are they not pushing for women to have to register also? So no. Men have to. Women may if they choose. This is weird equality, is it not? Um, so the U.S. the Navy and the Air Force have already opened all positions in combat, all positions to women, including, by the way, uh, in the U.S. Navy on submarines. Is that weird? Uh, they do their utmost to uh, restrain people from finding out the pregnancy statistics. But um, the number of uh, females that are out of active service because of pregnancy is... Uh, uh, it's an enormous figure, and I, I don't have the exact statistics, but um, word of mouth and anecdotally, it seems to be very high indeed. Um, the Marines did a study on hundreds of volunteers in simulated combat, and this was reported in the, in the network news quite widely. Uh, listen to this. Women were injured twice as often as men, more than twice as often, actually. Uh, the, the rate of injury for men was 18.8%, so it's under 20%. The rate for women was over 40%, so it's more than twice the rate women are injured. Now, in the military, um, if somebody gets injured, in training, it's just a problem of, of money, right? You've got to bring somebody else in. You've got to basically have more people than you actually need because a certain number are going to be out for injury. So with men's rate of injury at 20%, we know what you've got to do, but now you've got to more than double that if you have women on board as well, right? Quite straightforward. And please understand, I love women. Right? This is not a this is not an anti-women anti discussion. It's not an anti-women segment part of the show. I'm actually married to one. I'm actually the father of six more. And, um, and there's absolutely nothing that I'm going to be saying to you that a single one of, of my ladies would disagree with at all. This is, I, so far, I'm just telling you the basic statistics, right? You may not like it, but uh, it's, it's true. It's unavoidable. Uh, men were far more accurate at shooting. Uh, women had trouble with several combat challenges, including removing casualties off the field. So we got major problems. This is a little bit reminiscent of... Um, of tests that were done by various fire departments when fire departments were um, opened to women. And, uh, you know, everybody joked at the time, 
that, uh, you know, heaven forbid, I'm, I'm on the uh, eighth floor of a burning building and they run a ladder up, I really want to see a 200-pound fireman at my window, not a 90-pound fire girl. And, uh, and uh, that is such a straightforward and obvious um, statement, and yet uh, it, it drove the left mad and, uh, and was considered to be unthinkable. Nobody did anything at all about it. All they did is they changed the physical test requirements for females uh, to make it possible for them to qualify, and they kept the, the, the tougher physical challenge. All right, you, you all know this. But um, uh, so, so this is a fine business now. So in combat, uh, guys have to know that the woman next to them in combat has a more than twice the rate of getting injured. N we're not even talking about shooting, okay? <laughs> this is not being injured by the enemy. This is just injury because of what goes on on a battlefield. You know, you twist an ankle, you, uh, uh, you carry a load badly and, and injure your back. I mean, there's, there's a hundred different ways of getting hurt when you're a soldier. For women, it's more than 200, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So there it is. And, um, and so the country is pushing to put women alongside men into combat. And, um, and this is supposed to be fine. But now imagine what it would look like if we had um, filled arenas watching football matches going on. And I want you to imagine what it would look like, you know, if a 140-pound uh, um, a, a, a female uh, receiver was smashed into by a 220-pound male safety. Um, you know, what happens? What happens if a 140-pound female forward was <laughs> smashed into by a male defenseman who is five or six inches taller and about 70 or 80 pounds heavier? There's going to be cracked ribs, right? It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be tolerated. And this is why you do not find men and women playing uh, football or soccer or anything on the same team. They don't do it. How about boxing? Would you, go with, um, a, 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 would you go to a boxing match where a male is boxing against a female? Right? It's out of the question. But apparently... In the military, we think that that is just fine, right? So what everybody trots out is, and again, you know, not to the point of where they're wanting college athletics and sports uh, to be gender blind. Oh, no, they, obviously they don't want that. It'd be insane. But what they always trot out is that 1973 victory of Billie Jean King beating Bobby Riggs. And I'm sure you've, you know, if you if you have an eye for for this kind of debate and this particular um, corruption occurring to our culture, then you will have heard people go, "Well, what are you talking about? Billie Jean King is a woman, and she beat Bobby Riggs, who was a top-ranked tennis player back in '73." Well, yeah, like I just told you, uh, Billie Jean King was 29, 29 years old, and at her top of her game, and 
Bobby West was uh, 55 years old, long retired. He'd won Wimbledon before the Second World War. <laughs> that was when his last main victory was, and we're talking now 1973. Uh, and what people don't tell you is what I mentioned a little earlier, is that in spite of that age disparity, uh, Bobby Riggs massacred 30-year-old Margaret Court, 6261, and then in 1992, as I told you, uh, Jimmy Connors, much older, uh, 40 years old, took on Martina Navratilova with the rules, by the way, rigged in her favor in terms of he gets only one serve, she gets to play into half the doubles court, um, and he still beat her in straight sets. And, uh, of course, Billie Jean King did refuse Riggs a, um, agreed, a contractually agreed rematch. Um, and everybody obviously knew what would have happened had that rematch occurred. But, but there it is. Um, tennis is a game. War is pretty serious. And, um, and what do you want male soldiers to do? What do you want male soldiers to do when their woman comrade beside them, and you know the close relationships that build up between soldiers in combat. So now you've got, um, first of all, the tremendous sexual tension under those circumstances, and then you've got the situation of what is uh, a man to do when the woman next to him gets injured, maybe just by an accident or by enemy action. What is he supposed to do? Just let her die horribly while he continues on with his mission? And do we want those sorts of men to be part again of normal society? Do you ever return to normal as a man if you have contributed to killing female soldiers, whether it's on the enemy's side or uh, whether because of things that happened you were felt responsible for women dying on your team? Uh, is that what you really want? Do we want men who uh, come back from that? Massive problem. And what's really going on here, how the world really works, if you like, is what I have to tell you when we get back. My website, please visit youneedarabbi.com. Y-O-U, youneedarabbi, R-A-B-B-I.com. And uh, at youneedarabbi.com, number one, you'll be able to go to the Contact Us tab and shoot me an email. Tell me how you feel about the uh, podcast. Do you want the episodes to be shorter? Are you okay with this length? Tell me about anything you'd like me to tackle. Uh, as a topic, uh, tell me if you have any ideas of whether we should start doing phone calls, use some of the technology that's available to uh, enable people to call in on the podcast. That's also something we can think about. So go to You Need a Rabbi and contact me. You can also uh, subscribe to my free weekly email called Four Tools, all of that on my website. Back in just a moment to uh, examine what on earth is the reason that the United States of America, and to some extent England and Europe, going crazy on the whole issue of gender. What's really happening? Your rabbi will tell you in just a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Pure Opelka with Mike Opelka. This week, Wendy Patrick is back. That's right, the behavioralist who watched the debates and saw things that you didn't see, that I didn't see, but she says are very important. You do not want to miss this one. 
Pure Opelka. Saturdays, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Yes, your radio rabbi revealing how the world really works. Thanks again for being part of the 12th episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Uh, That's right, this podcast now uh, in its 12th episode, one released every week. And uh, here we are with number 12. Uh, speaking about something that uh, happened oh, a few years back, it was uh, uh, fall 2013, um, a Colorado high school, this is not too far from Colorado Springs, a place called Florence, just outside Colorado Springs, and uh, what's happening, Florence High School, yes, at the high school, um, old, basically boys who have to state that they identify as girls are allowed to use the bathrooms of the girls. And so they've got a senior, they've got a case of senior boys, right? Those are boys of 17 and 18 uh, using the girls' bathroom while girls of, uh, of a considerably younger age are there. Not surprisingly, the girls feel uncomfortable. Uh, the, the internal sense of modesty is violated. And uh, the parents are upset. And the position of the school administration is that any girls who complain about this will be disciplined, will be punished. This is like, you know, brave new world. What an extraordinary thing that the authorities are basically trying to re-educate human nature out of young women. That's what's happening. It's crazy. Now, since that time, the same scenario has been played out at numerous schools around the country. Um, Do you know that the state of Maine has the rule now that boys must be allowed to use girls' bathrooms in every school in the country? If you try and stop boys who claim that they identify as girls from using the girls' bathroom, you're in violation of Maine's Human Rights Act. And the Maine, listen to this, this is the state of Maine. Uh, Their Supreme Judicial Court ruled, um, 2014, ruled 5 to 1 that banning boys from using the girls' bathroom violates their rights. How about the girls' rights? No. I'm sure you've picked up already that the rights of people who trample over normality in the sexual arena are favored. If you are a, um, if you are boundary bashing on the gender issue, you have special privilege. Young girl, Nicole Maines, funnily enough, uh, brought a lawsuit, and um, she uh, okay, okay. She's she, <laughs> she calls herself Nicole Maines, but um, that's not how she was born, and um, she was actually a guy. No, there's been no hormone therapy, no surgery. Uh, it's a guy. 
but he believes that he is identifying as a woman and um, he's allowed to use the girls' bathroom. So um, this is what's going on. This is happening. So what is it exactly? What, what is taking place? Um, the uh, California just passed a, a bill not so long ago, also a year or two ago, that um, K through 12 transgender students have these special rights. It's pretty amazing. Um, the um, <laughs> gosh, it as low as first graders, by the way. First graders. Again in Colorado, a first grade boy who identifies as a girl. Now, is it him? Is it his parents? Who knows what it is? But this little boy, the Colorado courts ruled in favor of his right to use the girls' bathroom. And uh, I mean, listen to the, the court. The court ruled that keeping the ban in place, a ban basically preventing boys from using the girls' bathroom, quote, creates an environment that is objectively and subjectively hostile, intimidating, or offensive. To who? To the little boy who feels that he's a girl. But how about the little girls who feel they're girls and rightly feel uncomfortable about this? Now, I, d I also don't believe that, that there's necessarily sincerity all along here because, you know what, I remember when I was 14, and I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but uh, my duty to you transcends my comfort. And uh, I, I will tell you honestly that at the age of 13 or 14, if you'd have told me I could use the girls' bathroom by simply making a statement that I identify as a girl, bingo! <laughs> it's not even a question. Of course I'd have been there. And... Uh, their discomfort with it and their dislike of, of that idea, uh, absolutely irrelevant to me. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have paid a moment's attention to that, my friends. Absolutely not. And so, again, no thought whatsoever for the rights of the girls because they are normal. They're doing what girls have done for thousands of years, which is feel modest and not wanting to expose themselves in front of boys. But special treatment for those who are bending and pushing the boundaries. The boys who think they're girls. It's very interesting to me, by the way, and uh, we have to talk about this. Why is it that the overwhelming majority of these cases are boys wanting or claiming to be girls but where are all the cases of the girls claiming to be boys? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed a massive disparity? Massive disparity in the number of uh, men trying to become women as opposed to the number of women trying to become men. That tells us something, doesn't it? We have to think about that. Again, at the, uh, at the grade level, all right, what 13 or 14 or 10-year-old or 9-year-old or 7-year-old girl would want to use the men's bathroom? The guys. She'd say, yuck. <laughs> Who, who'd want that? Right? Out of the question. 
but um, the Colorado Division of Civil Rights claims that transgendered students, what does that mean, transgendered students? You know what it means? Somebody, so a guy who gets up and says, I feel I'm a girl, must be treated equally. It's not equal. It's more than equal. They specifically reference the outmoded concept of separate but equal. Separate but equal is not equal. And, um, and of course, progressive parents are right behind them. What is going on here? And by the way, you know you can already have your passport changed. As a kid, you don't need to have surgery. You and again, please understand, uh, not for one moment do I accept that there is a procedure to change a girl into a boy or a boy into a girl. I think there's plenty of surgery that can be done that uh, will uh, mutilate a boy but not turn him into a girl. No matter what you do to his male organs, what it, what, no matter what hormones you pump into his body, no matter if you're able to grow his breasts and reduce his muscle and eliminate his natural hair growth, at the end of the day, he's a mutilated male. He's not a female. At the end of the day, his chromosomes will still show that he's a male and not a female. And so... Why is this so apparently clear to me, but so obviously, equally obviously, I'm, I'm, out of, I'm, I'm out of it. I'm obviously a dinosaur here because there are parents in schools all around the country that are applauding, literally applauding these moves to essentially eliminate gender. But please note, they don't do it on the sports field. So they admit that there are substantial, significant differences between boys and girls that make it essential to have separate but equal facilities. So separate but equal soccer teams, separate but equal wrestling, separate but equal basketball. That's good. But separate but equal bathrooms? No, that's inherently unequal. It's mad, isn't it? There are times you wonder whether you are the one who's insane. So rest assured, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show is solemnly pledged to help you retain your sanity and to have you gain the ability, if you don't have it already, and I'm sure you probably do, uh, to be able to look at this nuttiness and call it for what it is. The emperor has no clothes. So the question is why? And again, the answer flows from the secularization trend in America, where for the last 40 or 50 years, little by little, at sometimes faster and at sometimes slower, but inexorably constantly in the same direction, Society in America has been uh, obli obliterating its Judeo-Christian heritage. It's been uh, completely expunging uh, any kind of biblical authenticity within its worldview. What do I mean and why is that? Well, because part of a biblical training, and there's a reason for this, right? There's a reason why 
a biblically oriented societies have been the societies that produce the civilization to which everybody else in the world wants to flock. They're voting with their feet. Western Europe, European civilization, American civilization, all of this created really by uh, a fundamental underlying biblical perspective on things. Now part of that is that um, the good Lord created you in his image. He either created you male or he created you female. It was one of the two. We live in a binary world, remember? And that's why the Bible says very clearly in Genesis, more than once, male and female, he created them, male and female. And uh, it's not only that, but it's also that a biblical perspective uh, conveys the idea and inculcates the idea as you're growing up that uh, things don't necessarily work the way you want them to work. There are rules, there are rituals, there are regulations, there are restraints, and, uh, and those are there for the benefit of a society. They're there for the benefit of everybody. But it does mean that there are limits on the expression of your individuality. So we accept that. Uh, we also accept that you can't do everything you want. So for instance, if you're a lady who got pregnant, and this was profoundly inconvenient for any one of a hundred different reasons, you have to now decide. Is everything, does everything revolve around your convenience, in which case you do away with the child inside you? Or do you say, no, I, I wish I could, it would be convenient, I wish I could sort of undo everything, but uh, life is not like that, and uh, I have to deal with what is, not with what I think I can remake. And by and large, it's not an accident that those people for whom the Bible is a significant player in their lives would say, I cannot kill the baby, no matter how inconvenient it is. And those uh, who have utterly rejected a biblical worldview as, as in any way uh, relevant to their life feel complete comfort and convenience and ease at doing away with a child. But it's even more than that. How much more? Let me tell you that in just a moment. I'll be back with you in just a moment or two. Don't go away. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. What is the difference between what you're eating now versus what you ate 40 years ago? It's more mass-produced crap that they put in the food so it'll stay on the shelf longer so Unilever and these other companies can make even more money. We have to go back to eating fruits and vegetables in this stuff. And I don't need the federal government under the guise of protecting public health screwing with us on this stuff. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Your radio rabbi revealing how the world really works on this, the 12th episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show on the Blaze. And, uh, and look, I don't, uh, I don't dispute for a moment that there is no uh, genuine feeling in uh, in any of these people, um, that that it, it shows up that young, I have absolutely no idea. Uh, but that there are 
men who uh, in their minds and in their brains and in their hearts feel that feel discomfort with the fact that they're male and that they'd rather be female. I understand all of that. I do. Uh, I think there are uh, there are people, men more than than women, I think, who um, who who have other identity um, situations. I don't want to call them disorders because I'm not sure this is a disorder. I don't know, but I do know that. Uh, this is something that should be treated rather than indulged. Okay? I, I don't have any doubt about that whatsoever. Um, in exactly the same way that uh, you know, if, if you have a, a child who uh, believes that uh, he, he wants to be, he must become a Muslim. Deep down at heart, he's a Muslim, and he must go and fight jihad. I don't think you accommodate to that. I think you do everything in your power to, to help your child straighten that out and to, to get back to reality. And there are many other examples of that as well, where we don't just simply let things happen. And sure enough, this used to be something right, that, that was treated. This, I mean, this isn't a brand new situation for, uh, for people to be uncomfortable with who they are, to be not comfortable in their skins, including in the gender area. It's, it's not brand new. And uh, for an awfully long time, this has been dealt with by helping people get through that. But that's, that's what you do. But now we have this complete acceptance. No, it's not acceptance. It's an embrace. It's um, lionizing and turning into heroes. Anybody who pushes or crosses the, the gender boundary. We love this. And uh, what's, what's going on here? Well, I think a very important part of it is this idea that gender really does have a great deal to say about what sort of life you're living, what, you know, what you're going to be doing with your life, and uh, the sort of things you're likely to want and things you're not going to want. There is a... Uh, an awfully sad book that came out a little while back that spoke about the impact of World War I on British society. And such a massive proportion of England's 18 to 25-year-old men died in the fields of Brussels and France uh, during World War I that um, headmistresses would have meetings with the 12th grade girls and say to them, look, you know, eight out of ten of you are not going to get married. The men aren't there. Now, if male-female differences are irrelevant, then that wouldn't have been a statement of any significance. You know, says who? You marry a woman. You don't have to marry a man. And is marriage that important anyway? Some people like it, some people don't. But you see, it isn't like that. The overwhelming majority of women want to be married. To, they'd like to be married to wonderful men, and sadly, that dream doesn't always work out because of further damage that has been inflicted on the males of society. But male and female, he created them. That really lays down an awful lot. And so if uh, a child is a male, 
then right from the very beginning, his parents say to him, you know, you're a boy. You know, and, and we expect certain things from you. You know, I, I've got, my wife and I are blessed with six girls and one boy. And uh, when we would go on trips, like we used to, uh, and we still do, we used to boat as a family during the summers. But as you can imagine, with six daughters, I had an awful lot of luggage. And if we were traveling somewhere, I, I clearly remember that we could easily have 20 <laughs> pieces of luggage, right? So seven children, my wife and myself, it's uh, nine of us. And, you know, if, if each of us has two pieces of baggage and one or two of us have an, have an extra, there we were, 20 pieces of baggage. Um, it was my son's job to load them all into the car. Some of them were as big as he was. And we just didn't accept the words, I cannot, from him. He was expected, that was what you do as a male. That was what you did. And similarly, there were other areas in which he did not have to participate. We expected the girls to participate. Right? That's, that's what we did. What, what is an example of that? Well, uh, at meals, we, uh, we had the girls helping my wife prepare and serve meals and clear tables. He didn't have to do that. He was expected to do other things. He was expected to uh, prepare uh, words of spiritual and religious substance for discussion at the table. That was one of his responsibilities. Again, the girls did that as well. But uh, as an example of something he did that they didn't, the work of, of packing suitcases, all his work, uh, the of carrying out suitcases, garbage, taking out the garbage. I mean, the, the garbage, co the trash container in the yard was taller than he was. <laughs> Tough luck. Get a ladder, get a chair. It's your job. You're the boy. That's what we did. And many, many, many other families did exactly the same thing. Uh, we, we felt there, there, are different, there are differences between male and female. But if you are progressive, if you are secular, if you are far left liberal, if you're a socialist, if you're a communist, then you do not accept this idea that there is some malign force out there that can decree what your life is going to be like. No, absolutely not. And this is why there is such intense agitation over the area of gender. That's what's really going on there that under no circumstances can we contemplate allowing an accident of birth, a, a divine action selected, you shall be a boy, you shall be a girl. So what? That's irrelevant. It's just a, a minor and insignificant biological distinction that has nothing whatsoever to do with how you live your life. As a matter of fact, if you subsequently want to identify as the other from what you, fine, go ahead. Because this is always your choice. And that's really what lies at the heart of this entire gender struggle going on in Western society at the moment. It is an attempt to shrug off and shed uh, the last remaining vestige of something that says not everything in life is to your convenience. You are not the boss of you, necessarily. And that means that you can't do whatever you like to your body because you're not 
the boss of you. And certainly, severing an organ and mutilating yourself, without question, religiously uh, prohibited, wrong thing to do. Are there some people that have a proclivity to struggle with their agenda? Without question, I understand that, absolutely. But please don't think that I don't also have struggles. Mine are different from yours, and his are different from ours. We all have struggles. And the notion that somehow your gender struggle is worth more of society's concern than my struggle is it's absurd. It's completely absurd. Being a human being comes with challenges. That is part of what life is all about. And confronting those challenges and overcoming them is at the heart of the deepest and most profound happiness and joy that human beings can feel. So this is what we are up against right now in our society. Look, uh, I think it's really important that we understand those things that do change and those things that don't change. And um, one of the very best tools for equipping ourselves to cope with rapid change um, is by allowing ourselves to remain anchored to things that don't change. The way I always put it, and it's one of the slogans of, of this show, is that um, the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. What are the things that never change? Family relationships. As far back as you want to go in human history and as far into the forwards as you want to imagine, uh, people are always going to have to figure out a way to relate to their parents, to their siblings, to their children. Right? Family relationships, in some way or another, uh, are always going to be around. You want to know something else that's always going to be around? Money. The idea that, well, okay, uh, for a different show we'll discuss that, but money always going to be around. Uh, the, the need to, to work or finding a way around it, uh, yeah, absolutely going to be. These are things that don't change at all. Um, and and so, many, so many other areas. What does change? Technology, science, communication, medicine. Those are the things that change. But um, certain aspects of medicine, I don't think so. So, for instance... The uh, American Psychiatric Association, for many, many years, has produced a vitally important document known as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And uh, the, the fifth edition came out, I think, in uh, 2012 or the beginning of 2013. And, uh, and many, many changes. And there were, by the way, fascinating changes going from DSM-3 to DSM-4. Very interesting things. But... Um, one of the main differences between DSM-4 and DSM-5 just released a few years ago is that the term gender identity disorder, gone, doesn't exist. Um, they used to say, and this is only until 2012, um, that any man who believed he was sort of meant to be a woman was considered mentally ill. Now, I don't know if I'd say mentally ill, but, but certainly undergoing a, a difficult time that he needs help getting through but not by telling him he's a woman. 
I mean, that's like taking somebody who thinks he's a toothbrush and uh, making him go to bed next to a big, giant tube of toothpaste. You don't accommodate to things like that. There is such a thing as normality. But you see, that again means putting aside your own wishes and conforming to being part of a group. And that's something that biblical living, a biblically-based civilization, stresses. Liberalism stresses only the state. And other than that, full individualism. And so now, uh, the, the term changed with DSM-5, changed to something called gender dysphoria, which which, no, there's nothing wrong with them. This is a very legitimate thing. Somebody uh, doesn't feel comfortable with their born gender identity. And, uh, and you know, it's, it, it changes. So <laughs> this is something, my friends, that, uh, that doesn't change. And so it's, it's laughable when the American Psychiatric uh, uh, Association says, well, we worked on this for four years and uh, we are trying to reduce the amount of stigma and harm that existed to transgender people before, uh, and in just the same way as we removed the diagnosis of homosexuality in 1973, we now have to remove this diagnosis, and that's what they did in uh, 2013. And so uh, uh, gender dysphoria was left as a diagnosis, but that's because they want to make sure that gender transgender people could access health care and and, of course, the way the government uh, pays uh, reimbursements and so on in the healthcare industry, all based off the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So that, my friends, as far as we can go for today's show, thank you again for being with me. Much appreciated. Do stay in touch with me at my website, youneedarabbi.com, youneedarabbi.com. And uh, write to me there, subscribe to my portals, make sure we have a way of staying in touch. Let me know how you feel, and uh, I, in turn, will do exactly the same. But all I can do right now is to wish you all a wonderful week. I look forward to being back together with you again next week. And until then, I wish you good health and prosperity. God bless. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.